Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, greetings and best wishes to you and your family. Don't forget to return your renewal card by December 31 so that you won't miss any of the developments in 2008. Much is happening and it is vital that we understand it in the light of Bible prophecy. So send in the renewal card right now so you don't forget. During the last weekend of March 2007, there was a great celebration in Berlin marking the 50th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome. The treaty was the basis of the European Economic Community, which is today the European Union. Though not publicly stated, the purpose of the original 1957 treaty was to begin the process of resurrecting the Holy Roman Empire. Rome was appropriately chosen as the place where the treaty was signed, probably because Rome was seen as the historical place where the cultural and religious values of Europe had their center in past ages. The party in Berlin, which included beer and bratwurst, fireworks and all-night discos, afforded the opportunity for the public to distract themselves on the eve of March 25, the 50th birthday of the Treaty of Rome, while events in another part of Berlin secretly began the process of selling their souls. Before we go any further, however, let us bow our heads and ask for the blessing of the Holy Spirit as we look again into the secret forces of the Church. Our Father in Heaven, thank you for your revealed word that continually reminds us as we study its sacred pages that there is a time coming when every single prophecy of your servants, the holy prophets, will be fulfilled. We are grateful that you have revealed to those who faithfully live for Jesus that there is a judgment to face and an eternal destiny with the righteous to be secured. I pray that you will take our hearts and minds and open us to your truths for these last days. May we learn to live for Jesus now so that he will live with us then. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let us open our Bibles to the 14th chapter of Revelation, verses 9 and 10. This is the third part of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Let us read it. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The scriptures teach us that there is a conspiracy underway to destroy God's faithful people and make it impossible for them to live in the normal way if they don't receive the mark of the beast. But ultimately, those who comply with Rome's demands to worship in her way will receive the wrath of God. They will burn in the lake of fire to which Rome is destined as well. 
In the meantime, however, Rome is seeking ascendancy in the West, and particularly in Europe. Rome has long sought to re-establish popery on the European continent. Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI, said that today's EU should acknowledge a common imperial ideal, reported GermanForeignPolicy.com, August 29, 2006. What is a common imperial ideal? That's referring to an empire with its monarchical rule. Europe's commonness is not in its language, its politics, or its perspective. The only historical commonness that spans all of modern Europe is its common religious connection to the papacy. Benedict's comment essentially means that he wants Europe to return to its former ecclesiastical empire. Benedict wants Europe under papal rule again. Islam claims to own any geographical property she has ever conquered. So does Rome. Rome claims the right to rule Europe because at one time, from the 6th century to the Reformation and the French Revolution, Rome controlled the Holy Roman Empire. Ever since the deadly blow she received to her power in 1798 during the Wars of Napoleon, Rome has been working steadily and stealthily to regain control again. The deadly wound is in the process of being healed, as Revelation 13.3 predicts. While the German public was rockin' and rollin' last March, other, infinitely more important events were taking place in Berlin. In the German Historical Museum, a signing ceremony was taking place. European leaders from all over Europe came to Berlin to witness the signing of what is known as the Berlin Declaration. There is a battle going on for the soul of Europe between the Pope and Europe's secularists who want to divorce Europe from its Catholic religious heritage that dominated Europe for over 1,200 years. EUBusiness.com reported that beneath the veneer, and despite serving as a model of integration to the world, EU leaders battled to conclude a declaration that can mark past achievements and reassure citizens about the future. In 2006, the EU Commission President, José Manuel Barroso, hinted at the epic struggle going on in Europe over the destiny of the European Union. In a speech in June, he said that the forthcoming Berlin Declaration must be a restatement of Europe's values, wrote the European Parliament News on June 22. Barroso also said that he wanted all 27 member nations to sign the declaration together as a collective act of will. Barroso was already then, apparently, attempting to let the nations of the Union know what was expected of them at the upcoming Berlin meeting and pressure them to join the coalition and continue building the new empire. Coming up to the 50th anniversary celebrations of the European Union, it may have seemed to many onlookers that everything was in readiness to take the EU one step closer to a European constitution, which has been the goal of the EU Commission President and his allies in Germany, led by German Chancellor Angela Merkel. But instead of a ringing political statement of unanimity and progress toward a new Europe, controlled by a central government in Brussels, something else happened that has the potential to do much more damage. 
leading to control by the Vatican in Rome. Remember that the Word of God tells us that the beast power of the medieval papacy will rise again. The deadly wound will be healed and all the world shall wonder after the beast. That means that Europe will once again come under the control of the Vatican, while other nations such as the United States and other Western nations like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand perhaps will copy Rome's principles and follow her lead. Instead of moving forward toward a mature EU constitution as the Chancellor and the Commission President and others had planned, the Berlin Declaration was gutted of one of its most critical issues, the one that is perhaps the most important to the Vatican, the one that would again provide the Pope with the keys to Europe's soul, a reference to its Christian roots, meaning Roman Catholic roots. The trouble is, political union is difficult in Europe, and European leaders know it. Yet they continue to press their agenda even if it means cramming the new level of control down the throats of member nations. With so many nations that have differing and often competing interests, it is very difficult to get unity in the Union. Every attempt at solidifying the control of Brussels is met with one problem or another that prevents it. Perhaps the prophetic point here is that it isn't Brussels, the political power, that is the center of the jigsaw puzzle. It is Rome, the religious power. Make no mistake about it. Rome is working very hard at positioning itself to make this a reality. The Vatican is manipulating the politics of Europe vigorously to that end. But it hasn't happened yet. Perhaps the angels are still holding back the winds of strife by slowing down the progress of Europe's predicted return to power. The Berlin Declaration had to be toned down before the signing meeting in Berlin on March 25 in order to appease member nations that have significant concerns about the direction of the EU, specifically the spiritual direction. Remember that the Treaty of Rome in 1957 was signed in Rome as a commemoration of the historical religious roots of Europe. The EU Constitution of 2004 was signed in Rome also, and for the same reasons. It was later rejected by French and Dutch voters in national referendums, placing the whole concept of a European Constitution in jeopardy. But Europe remains divided between Romanism and secularism, which is limiting the ability of the bureaucrats in Brussels to reimpose the Catholic central government over Europe. But in a move sure to ignite controversy, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who was the prime mover behind the Berlin Declaration, switched procedures on the signatories. Originally, the declaration was to be signed by all the heads of the EU member states. But Chancellor Merkel, who was the reigning president of the EU at the time, ruled that only three people would sign the declaration for all of the EU nations, herself, European Commission President Barroso, and the president of the European Parliament, Hans-Geert Pottering. But Angela Merkel didn't just leave out all the other heads of the EU nations in signing the agreement. Some of her pet issues were also left out of the declaration itself in order to make progress. Left out of the text was any reference to the EU constitution, the ratification of which was one of the key goals of the Chancellor during her six-month term as president. 
Also left out was any reference to the religion that claims to have provided Europe with its culture and values, Christianity or Roman Catholicism. When the Pope learned that the 2007 Berlin Declaration would not have a reference to Europe's Christian roots, he was angry. He gave a speech on Saturday, March 24, 2007, to the European bishops just one day prior to the signing of the Berlin Declaration. Reuters reported on Sunday, March 25, uh, that Pope Benedict strongly criticized the European Union on Saturday for excluding a mention of God and Europe's Christian roots in declarations marking the 50th anniversary of its founding. In a toughly worded speech to European bishops, Benedict said Europe was committing a form of apostasy of itself and was thus doubting its own identity. The Pope, said leaders, could not exclude values that helped forge the very soul of the continent. If the governments of the Union want to get closer to their citizens, how can they exclude an element as essential to the identity of Europe as Christianity, in which the vast majority of its people continue to identify, he said. Does not this unique form of apostasy of itself, even before God, lead it, that is Europe, to doubt its very identity? One of the Pope's compatriots, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, last month made a plea for the bloc to include references to Christian roots. Merkel is now in the process of reviving the Constitution. Comments from Merkel, the daughter of a pastor, have encouraged religious leaders around Europe to redouble efforts to modify the Constitution. Italian Prime Minister Romano Prati said he had pushed for inclusion of Catholic roots in the document, continued Reuters. Pope Benedict warned the bloc was headed up a slippery slope of indifference and said it could not deny its historical, cultural, and moral identity that Christianity helped forge. A community that builds itself without respecting the true dignity of the human being, forgetting that each person is created in the image of God, ends up doing good for no one, he said. Notice that Benedict did not speak or write to Angela Merkel, Manuel Barroso, or Hans Geert Pottering. He spoke to the bishops and publicly published his remarks. Popes don't often criticize civil leaders directly particularly when it is a strong criticism such as this was. They want to keep an open channel of communication. By speaking to the bishops, he can accomplish the same thing, as well as urge the bishops to redouble their efforts to bring Europe into line with papal rule. The Vatican has substantial political influence in Europe, and Euro leaders know it. Benedict was trying to make it more difficult for European leaders to buck papal power. Euro leaders don't want Benedict as an opponent. Benedict's speech told those leaders that they were not in harmony with the Vatican and that he was drawing his spiritual sword. Not since the signing of the Treaty of Rome has a pope been so pointed in his remarks about Europe's secularism. Notice that Benedict XVI said that it was a unique form of apostasy in that Europe had apostatized from itself and also from God meaning the Catholic faith. Rome always claims the people as her own, even if they don't believe in Christianity, let alone Catholicism. 
since Rome ruled the territories of Europe for centuries. Hence, their apostasy is political as well as spiritual, according to him. Benedict is trying to say that Catholicism is part and parcel with European identity. To accuse Europe and its leaders of apostasy is a powerful way of condemning the secularism of the European continent. No doubt Benedict's speech got the attention of European leaders as intended. Benedict threw cold water on Europe's birthday party. His criticism was timed perfectly to maximize the effect. Criticism usually has the effect of providing opportunities for reconciliation, which will ultimately link these nations more tightly with Rome. The Pope knows that Angela Merkel and Manuel Barroso and Hans-Gert Pottering are strongly supportive of Rome's leadership of the emerging European Union. So even though he, his remarks were rather sweeping in scope, they could not have been taken personally by these three leaders. They have been in league with Rome as a powerful force to draw Europe around the Pope as its spiritual leader in the new Euro Empire. Why then did Benedict criticize European leaders in his speech to the bishops? The Pope is more concerned about the leaders of nations that are opposed to bringing Europe under the Vatican. His speech was focused on them and the people that create their political situation. The three leaders of the EU had to work with the reality of the political situation. Benedict knows that they are doing all they can to support a return to their Christian roots as Europeans and connect them to the papacy. For example, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, after a meeting with the Pope at his summer residence in 2006, reaffirmed her support for a Christian values clause in the EU Constitution. I believe this treaty should be linked to Christianity and God, Deutsche Welle quoted her, because Christianity was decisive in the formation of Europe. During the meeting with Benedict, I emphasized the need for a constitution and that it should refer to our Christian values, quoted the Guardian. Also, Hans Gert Pottering, the president of the European Parliament, who sees his Christian faith as intrinsic to his politics, according to Deutsche Welle, was the leader of the influential Catholic center-right party of Christian Democrats prior to taking over the European Parliament as its president. Pottering told the Pope last year that his group was determined to see the spiritual dimension of the European Union written into the European Constitution. He even described the European Constitution as a holy text, reported the Parliament.com and others. But secret forces are also at work, collaborating on the future of these leaders and the Pope. On the very day before the Pope's condemnation of the secularized version of the Berlin Declaration, and two days before the signing of the Declaration, there was a private meeting in the Vatican between the Pope and none other than Hans-Gert Pottering, the President of the EU Parliament. Whether Pottering initiated the meeting to ensure the Pope of his continuing support in light of the seemingly irreligious Berlin Declaration, or whether it was the Vatican officials who were going to alert Pottering to the coming papal condemnation is not known. But the meeting happened in the Vatican nonetheless. During the audience, said Pottering, 
we spoke about the question of citing the Judo-Christian roots of Europe in the constitutional treaty of the future of the EU and of the problems of interreligious and intercultural dialogue, reported the International Herald Tribune on March 3, 2007. So while other leaders were gathering in Berlin, Hans-Geert Pottering was at the Vatican. But what was he doing there? He was there for a very special reason. I quote, The President of the European Parliament met with Pope Benedict XVI on Friday, March 23, and invited the pontiff to address a plenary session of the legislature, or parliament, said the Tribune. An invitation to address the full European Parliament would provide Rome with the finest opportunity to urge Europe to resurrect the Holy Roman Empire. There the Pope can speak to the heart of the issues concerning the direction of the Union. The Pope had been invited by Angela Merkel to make a speech at the time of the signing of the Berlin Declaration, reported GermanForeignPolicy.com, August 29, 2006. But obviously, it didn't happen. After all, how could the Pope lend his credibility to a declaration that was inconsistent with one of his most deeply held principles, a statement linking the history of the European Empire with its Christian heritage centered in the Roman Catholic Church? So, while the preparations for the celebration in Berlin were going on, and while European leaders were gathering in Berlin for the signing of the Berlin Declaration on the 50th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome, the President of the EU Parliament was in Rome talking to the Pope and inviting him to speak to the full Parliament. These largely unknown events are surely a sign of the Pope's re-emergence as a world leader, answering the specific prophecy of the healing of the deadly wound found in Revelation 13. But the connections and political maneuverings between the EU and Catholicism run far more deeply. During the celebrations in Berlin, there was present an old man whose credentials go deep into the history of the old Holy Roman Empire. Otto von Habsburg who is a descendant of the family that controlled the Austro-Hungarian Empire and kept it very close to Roman Catholicism for hundreds of years. Beginning in the 13th century, without the ardently Catholic Habsburgs in Spain and Austria, the papacy could not have maintained control of the Holy Roman Empire. Otto von Habsburg, known as Mr. Europe, by Inside the Vatican, which is a monthly Catholic magazine, is credited with doing as much as any man alive to lay the groundwork for the European Union. Now, 94, he attended the March 2007 celebrations in Berlin. His efforts to see a revival of the Holy Roman Empire have been so significant that the Catholic Church acknowledges the debt they have to him. If the problem of Europe weighs heavily on the heart of this Bavarian Pope, intoned the magazine inside the Vatican, no one man better personifies a truly Catholic response to it than does Dr. Otto von Habsburg, heir of the last great Catholic monarchy and visionary architect of today's expanding European Union. 
His decades of public service in the political arena exemplify the best of Europe's Christian past and its hopes for a peaceful, united, and still Christian future. Then, alluding to the real agenda behind the European Union, the magazine wrote, Born to a 700-year-old imperial dynasty, the present-day head of the House of Habsburg has, in his own way, taken up the same mantle of responsibility borne by the Austrian emperors and the Holy Roman emperors before them, without benefit of any of the offices, perks, or powers. Otto von Habsburg, who was exiled from Hungary during the Nazi and communist regimes of the 20th century, has been working very hard to restore his ancestral goal of making and keeping the Catholic Church at the head of Europe. He knows that Europe's only hope for cohesion as a united conglomerate of nations is when they recognize the Pope as their leader. If that becomes a reality... It would not only be a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy, which predicts that the deadly wound will be healed so that all the world can wonder after the beast, Revelation 13.3, but it is also a direct fulfillment of a prophecy found in the writings of God's messenger to the remnant, which says that Romanism in the old world and apostate Protestantism in the new will pursue a similar course toward those who honor all the divine precepts. Great Controversy, page 616. This is the real issue behind the rise of the European Union. A united Europe rallied around the Pope that pursues God's true people. Remember that prophecy always centers around what is going to happen to God's people. So we must look at these political and prophetic developments in relation to God's church. Rome cannot persecute unless it unites church and state. This is what Habsburg wants. This is what Rome wants. If the papacy is able to reunite church and state in the European Union and return Europe to the forms of political religion it once had, she will have gained an unprecedented victory in the modern age, overthrowing the Reformation. This is why Benedict is attempting to get a reference to the Christian roots of Europe inserted into the EU Constitution and any other documents and declarations related to it. Rome still has the age-old concept of the mingling of church and state and of using the state to accomplish the ends and purposes of the church. In other words, Rome is seeking to again organize the politics of Europe to let it wield the secular sword on her behalf. This is one of the secret forces of the church. The uniting of church and state has always yielded the loss of religious freedom and most other freedoms as well. The destruction of the freedom of conscience is one of Rome's primary objectives. Listen to the statement of one of the popes in relation to this freedom in America. Pope Pius IX, in his encyclical letter of August 15, 1854, said, The absurd and erroneous doctrines or ravings in defense of liberty of conscience are a most pestilential error, a pest of all others most to be dreaded in a state. The same Pope, in his encyclical letter of December 8, 1864, anathemized those who assert the liberty of conscience and of religious worship. Also, all such as maintain that the church may not employ force. And that's from Great Controversy, page 564 and 5.
If Rome feels this way about America, which did not have Roman Catholic roots, how do you think she feels about Europe, with which she had so much to do in shaping the old medieval world? The separation of church and state brought great relief to the persecuted both in the New World and also in many parts of Europe. But that great principle is being precipitously eroded. When a church becomes the state church, there is inevitably persecution of those that do not go along with its doctrines or dogmas. When a church becomes the favorite of the state, this principle unleashes the power of the church in such a way that it eventually overwhelms the minority churches with oppression. Rome knows that her secret forces have no power unless she can wield the sword of the state to give her the control over the minds of the populations of nations. This she intends to do, according to prophecy, and she intends to cause the death, ultimately, of anyone that is prepared to stand in her way. This is why it is important to pay attention to the activities of the leaders of the nations in relation to the Vatican, including the bishops, its Jesuits, and any of its trained members. That is why it is important to understand that for a president of any faith, particularly a non-Catholic faith, to attend Red Mass in St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, D.C., as President Bush did on Sunday, October 2, in 2005, is a very serious matter. For the President of the United States, or any other official, such as the Secretary of State, to pay an official state visit to the Bishop of Rome is a very dangerous step that will affect God's Church. It is important to realize that for the leaders of the EU uh, to make ad limina visits to the Vatican, invite the Pope to speak to the European Parliament, or to place a reference to the Christian roots of Europe in its forthcoming constitution is also a very serious matter, because those Christian roots inevitably mean Catholic roots. Rome is angling for the reuniting of church and state throughout the EU. There can be no doubt about that. And for the United States to be able to wield all the power of the first beast, that is, Revelation 13.12, she will also have to unite church and state as a mirror image of the coming papal empire in Europe. The signing of the Treaty of Rome in 1957 was attended by heads of state from all over Europe, virtually all of them devout Roman Catholics who were then received at the Vatican for a private audience with the Pope. There seems to be no doubt in anyone's mind that the treaty was the foundation of the resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire, which would, of course, eventually include a uniting of church and state to place Europe back in the hands of Rome, just as prophecy predicted. The treaty also provided a foundation for one of Europe's secret forces to work. The goal is ultimately to rally Europe around the Pope and make a way for persecution to rise again. Europe's history involves unity around the papacy and its religious dogma as a sacred society that no one could disregard or ignore except at the peril of his life, liberty, and personal possessions. This religious ideology has given the diverse cultures, languages, and political needs of the separate nation-states the one principle on which to unite. Without it, Europe would have had no unity whatsoever. Now that secularism dominates the religious landscape of many European nations, 
Many European leaders see the need to reunite Europe on this same principle. Though it is a superficial and political unity that is developing under the papacy, it is clear that it will have large religious and prophetic implications. The Vatican may well see the Berlin Declaration with its lack of reference to Christianity as an open challenge to the supremacy of Rome on the European continent. The Pope has confronted this challenge by his language to the bishops concerning Europe's apostasy. Now he has the opportunity to address the whole European Parliament in an effort to press his agenda. If the Parliament should listen to the Pope's urgent demands, and perhaps railroad the religion of Rome into becoming the official recognized state religion of the European Union, it will certainly lead to the fulfillment of God's infallible word in our day. It is important to note that the laws of the European Parliament supersede all the laws of the nations themselves. Could it be possible that the European Parliament will one day endorse one religion above all others? Will that religion be the religion of the Pope? Will the Bavarian Pope offer a parliamentary or political solution for the unity of the nations? Will Benedict XVI provide the answer to the resistance of a few nations to the inevitable resurrection of the Holy Roman Catholic Empire just as soon as the angels holding back the winds of strife allow it? Let us refresh for a moment exactly what happened in March. A crisis arose because the leaders of the EU left out any reference to Europe's Christian roots and values in the Berlin Declaration. The Pope chastised and condemned the European leaders for doing so. And on the same weekend in March, as the celebrations of the anniversary of the Treaty of Rome, Europe's leaders invited the Pope to come into the center of European power and speak to its Parliament. Does it sound to you like there are forces at work on both sides of this dilemma? Could there be a grand political scheme being played out in Europe to reshape European focus and priorities? I wonder if perhaps there is some collusion going on between the three top leaders, and perhaps others, in the European Union, that have been conspiring with the Pope to justify an opportunity for him to stand at the head of the Parliament and offer them a solution to the disunity that all of Europe feels. That solution would be a return to the Catholic roots of Europe. Listen to the words of Scripture. Revelation 17, 12-14 says, and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength to the beast. These make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called, chosen, and faithful." These are serious times, my friends. Note that the developing coalition will make war with Christ himself, the Lamb of God. But praise God, he overcomes them. We are living in a time described in prophecy just before the close of probation and the end of the world. Are you part of the called, chosen, and faithful? The devil is going about like a raging lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5.8. Those that are his emissaries are also raging. 
though for the time being they are muting their voices as they manipulate governments in preparation for the long-range plan they have formulated to conspire against God's people. These prophetic movements are important to comprehend if the coming crisis is not going to overtake us as an overwhelming surprise. What is the next step in the ongoing drama for the control of Europe? Pay attention. You won't want to miss what the Pope has to say to the Europarliament when the time comes. Stay tuned. The secret forces are at work. These things tell us that the time is near when Jesus will come in the clouds of glory. We have nothing to fear from the secret forces of the church if we are truly trusting our souls to Jesus. This means that we will have to put away anything in our lives that is displeasing to Him. That means that through His power in us, he, we will overcome on every point, the sacrifice be what it may. We must surrender our souls today. We cannot wait until the beginning of the time of trouble when we see the first signs of a Sunday law coming to start the process of overcoming. We must prepare our souls now, not in some distant future, not after we watch just this one last Hollywood movie, or eat this one last piece of chicken, or go to the ball game this one last season, or play this one last internet game. It is now that we have to invite Jesus into our hearts so that he can become the master there. My friends, Jesus is calling us now to come out of Babylon and to get Babylon out of us. We must get out of the things that bind us to Babylon and recognize where we are in the stream of time. The secret forces of the church are serious, my friends, and we are not as serious about overcoming as we should. The secret forces of the church are working for your eternal ruin, and my prayer is that you are working in cooperation with Jesus for your eternal life. Your eternal destiny is at stake. The movements now developing tell us clearly that the end is near. Please, my dear friend, make your calling and election sure. You will never regret surrendering your life to the life-giver, Jesus Christ. You may suffer loss here and now, but you will gain an eternity of riches in Christ Jesus. You may suffer persecutions in this life, but you will inherit an eternal life with the saints and angels. Don't you want that? I do. I pray that you and all your family will want it so badly that you'll give up all your worldly hopes and ambitions as well as your sins and addictions so that you can gain Christ and everlasting joy. Let us pray. Our dear Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus Christ we come to you this day, earnestly pleading with you to make us your chosen people. We claim to be your people, but often we act like we're Satan's people. We cavil, we argue, and we gossip. We lack spiritual discernment, spiritual commitment, and spiritual sacrifice. We are steeped in entertainment, worldliness, and business. We are so unaware sometimes that we don't see the secret forces of the church at work to bring all of us into conformity to Rome. O oh God, please remove from us our desire for sin. Help us to love Jesus with all our heart, mind, and soul. And may we live for Him today and every day, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.
to see what the end will be. We hope you have received a great blessing from this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you have just heard is Done Made My Vow, sung by the Three Angels Chorale from Heartland College.